Hi, and welcome to the Collective Intelligence Podcasts. Today, we're joined by Dr. Mark Wilson, co-founder of GoodSAM, a revolutionary platform that alerts doctors, nurses, paramedics, and those trained in basic life support to emergencies around them. Collective action, saving lives. Hi, so my name is Mark Wilson. I'm a neurosurgeon, professor of brain injury at Imperial College in London. I'm also a pre-hospital care HEMS doctor for a number of air ambulances. My role in GoodSAM is that I'm a co-founder and the medical director of it. And GoodSAM is a platform that is now used for lots of different things. And just to briefly summarize them, it's used for crowdsourcing resuscitation. So if people in cardiac arrest, it's used for deploying people in emergencies. It's used in the, across the UK as a national volunteer platform for the NHS. So we've got three quarters of a million people who are deployed through the platform to go and help those who are self-isolating with COVID or self-isolating because of COVID. We have a big team communication system within the platform as well. We provide instant on-scene video services for the emergency services in the UK and in the US and in Australia and other parts of the world as well. And the, the unique thing about that is it, it's appless. People get sent a link and they click the link and it opens up the cameras on their phone, which is used by many emergency services to be able to instantly see what's going on scene and deploy people um, and the appropriate resources. And then we do some other stuff around home monitoring for virtual wards, medical wards for people who are may have COVID, for example. Uh, so there's a whole plethora of things that the service does, as well as doing sort of the standard sort of telemedicine communication side stuff that's becoming a big deal in COVID. What was the genesis of the idea to turn to volunteers to use collective intelligence to try to augment emergency services? So if you look at what kills people quickly, it's uh, hypoxia. That's lack of oxygen to your brain and lack of oxygen to your cardiac cells and in particular your brain. And it doesn't matter actually whether it's cardiac arrest or whether it's trauma, the things that happen in the first few minutes after that emergency determine the outcome. Uh, there's no, you weren't you on intensive care three days later, it's, it's irrelevant. If you're going to save someone, you need to do it in those few minutes. And for cardiac arrest in particular, for every minute that someone doesn't get CPR or, or AED use, defibrillator use, the chance of survival falls by 10%. And, and actually very briefly, to look at that, if you know the chance of survival on the streets of London is around 10% from an hospital cardiac arrest in Heathrow Airport, it's 80%. And that's all around the speed at which someone gets their hands on their chest, starts doing CPR and, and using an AED. There's no point trying to get ambulances there with some new wonder drug because that's not going to happen. What you have to do is crowdsource the people who are around who can provide help. So that's where this came from, really. It was, it was about crowdsourcing those who can provide help and, and informing of them of those who are nearby who needed help. And that's very much where the platform works. It geolocates those in need and geolocates those who can provide and connects the two together. And that's what it did for cardiac arrest. But that's also what it does, as I say, for COVID and all the other things that we're now doing in terms of deploying volunteers, micro-volunteering to go and provide help to those, the next door neighbor or the person in the street next door who can't go and get their pharmacy medication, for example, from the pharmacist because they're isolating, the neighbor around the corner can go and do it for them. And it sort of massively changed micro-volunteering here. When you first started this, and even now, people will listen to this and say there must be so many risks involved in crowdsourcing something as serious as medical first response. In fact, when you started this, you did it with off-duty licensed doctors, nurses, uh, healthcare workers, 
what has been the what sort of is the, has been the effect of actually getting volunteers involved in something as shall we say life and death as medical response has it worked well and what did it take to really overcome people's doubts and fears about those kinds of risks we're very medically led and very clinically led and very ethically slash highly governed led in the way we build things, the way we do things. So from day one, governance was always number one in all this. And I wouldn't say there's any more danger sending someone to someone who's in cardiac arrest than there is from a check-in and chat volunteer who could be talking to someone who's lonely on the phone or anything else. There's lots of risk in everything that we do. But what we've done is we've made sure that uh, absolutely those risks are completely minimized. On the platform, when people register, they either register themselves and upload their certification demonstrating who they are, their passport or their gym or their driving license so you know who they are and then their qualification, or they register under an organization that they work with. So for example, if you work for a police service or a, a hospital or a or any other form of service, that service looks after you and, and governs that they that person is the person they say they are. So firstly, who's on the platform? Uh, and the ambulance service or the emergency services have complete control. They can alert two people, three people, five people, whoever they want, and they can select the groups of people that they want to alert. So they have complete control. And that's what makes it safe into public spaces as well as private spaces as well as public spaces is because actually the whole system is extremely highly governed. And you have to be like that if, to make a system successful, which is, which is why it is successful. The technology is one thing, but the processes around it are equally as important. And uh, so... Yep, in everything, whether it be cardiac arrest or whether it be all the other volunteering and other aspects that we do with video, it's all highly governed. Have you had any trouble recruiting volunteers or is the ability to save a life and help another person enough of an incentive to get people to sign up? And how do you make them aware of the opportunity to participate? So there was trust. So there's one, there's sort of cardiac arrest response. There's lots of different ways you can volunteer. So cardiac arrest is the one that's uh, probably most well known. And that's pretty easy. That's anyone who's got the qualification. And actually in Australia and other places in New Zealand, they're happy to people to sign up who don't necessarily have a formal qualification, but have to self-certify. But again, it's highly governed. They have to upload the passport or the driving license. And that's usually done through social media or word of mouth. People register or people register on their organization. That's pretty quick. For the COVID response, which is three quarters of a million people in the UK, the announcement got made, I think it was on a Tuesday evening, and we had at the maximum rate 4,000 people signing up per second that night on the system, uploading their GM, their, their passports or their driving license or, or their criminal record certificates. And, and we filled up three quarters of a million within a couple of days. So that's pretty fast volunteering. I don't think we have a problem with that. <laughs> The And I'm curious, I want to bring in a little bit also now of your own evolution in this process as we talk about this. Obviously, you started from a very different place in your career. You were not trained as a crowdsourcing expert. I'm wondering if you could tell a little bit about your own personal evolution to uh, really come to this idea and to make the move from, it, it would be good, I think it would might be fun to hear a little bit about sort of your own background clinically and what the aha moment was for you in the evolution of this, on this journey from being an acute care physician, an adventure medicine doctor into now becoming really a governance expert in many ways. I still think I am a neurosurgeon, <laughs> hopefully my colleagues think I am as well, and a pre-hospital care doctor, that's still my primary job. 
But the the way this the, was, the evolution of this platform really is lots of people working together. And I should always say that the, 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 there's a huge amount of technical kind of stuff, there's a huge amount of community stuff as well. But in terms of ideas and uh, evolution of it, it all comes from providing emergency care in those first few minutes to those in need. So in my world of brain injury, as a, I specialize in brain injury, I see people who get hit over the head who stop breathing. They either lose their airway or they stop breathing. And they don't actually have that much of a brain injury. If you do a scan of them, they haven't got lots of blood in their head. They have just a hypoxic brain injury. And all that someone needed to do was hold that airway open in those first few minutes, and they wouldn't, they'd be fine. They wouldn't have died, or they wouldn't have a severe hypoxic brain injury. So what we wanted to do was find a way of helping those people. So it's my the primary interest was as, as brain injury, as I say. And that would be the same whether you have a cardiac arrest, it's still your brain that's going to suffer. And crowdsourcing that was the first way of trying to minimize that hypoxia. Crowdsourcing, people who are capable of holding an airway open to go and do that whilst the ambulance service is en route. So when the ambulance service arrives, the patient isn't dead. That's the first thing. But what we're doing now is the next step of that. Uh, and that is the video side of stuff. So we can open up the cameras of anyone in a 911 kind of call and see what's going on scene and say, that person's face down in the mud. They need, their airway is compromised. We can see that. And we can actually care for people through other people's hands. Uh, so we can say, can you turn the head out like that? You need to clear the airway. Okay, they're in cardiac arrest. You need to roll them over. We're going to do CPR. I'm going to show you how to do CPR. Put your hands in the middle of the chest. No, that's too high up. Lower down. Okay, there. We're now going to do uh, uh, CPR at a rate of 100 per minute. I'm going to count it through with you. We can provide care through other people. This is a very unique thing. So it's not the crowdsourcing is the first thing. The second thing is being able to use your eyes on scene through technology to provide even better care. And this is all about maintaining brain oxygenation if you're taking the extreme end of it. Of course, it can also be about helping people who are lonely, mental health patients, maternity patients. There's huge amounts of other stuff that comes with this. But the core principle is if you're applying this to the very, very acute emergency, you can make sure that people don't die as a result. So it's not really an aha moment. It's more of an evolution of how can we provide better care. Does it give you any lessons learned after the years of doing this about the circumstances under which not to use crowdsourcing? Have you developed any insights about when these methods really work and when they don't, when you would not try this? So the first thing to say is that there's perfectly good volunteering organizations on a local level that are already working just fine. So if you want a rotor to go and man the local volunteer library next Tuesday afternoon, you don't necessarily need to crowdsource that. Uh, you can do, and we do some of that stuff as well, but actually you don't need that. There's only, and this, isn't, this shouldn't take away from local crowdsourcing. I think what crowdsourcing is extremely good for is providing a, a safety net where you don't know what the capabilities might be. So for example, if we take the UK and our role in providing volunteers for COVID, across the country, there are places where they've got quite good local services. And actually, the people are of a certain class, if you like, where their relatives are all nearby, their daughter comes around and delivers them food. So actually, volunteers aren't needed. And those volunteers who are on the platform get a bit annoyed because they're all I've been on the platform, I'm not being used. But there are other parts of the country where there are no services and there aren't relatives around to go and help. And actually they're used a huge amount. So by having a national platform, you can suddenly fill the gaps where there are no services relatively easily. 
So uh, as I say, so if you've got a place which doesn't really need volunteers or there are already volunteer services set up on a local service that are working well, then the crowdsourcing kind of stuff possibly not needed. Although we're now going to the realm of helping those people as well with advanced systems. But it's, yeah, it's, it, it shouldn't be necessary, as for, certainly in the first instance, replacing good volunteer structures that are already there. It's taken a huge amount of effort to raise the money for this and to get the permissions to do this. Getting this off the ground in the first place, convincing people to let volunteers have hands-on in this situation, introducing technology. What have you learned and what advice would you give for other people wanting to start their own crowdsourcing projects in terms of the skills that it takes to really get something like this from idea to implementation? Well, it hasn't taken huge amounts of money at all. It's taken very little money, actually, to get this to get this running. What it's taken is finding the right people who can engage and can horizon scan and, and do stuff. I think the way the world is that you've got a lot of organisations that are very big and slow and they can't change very rapidly, and they employ people whose job it is to say no because they're obviously the way they keep their job is by saying no a lot. And so what you do is you go and find the people that actually can horizon scan and say yes and that this is the right thing to do. And yes, they might have concerns about various elements because it's new and it's culture change, but they are leaders in their way, in a way that they can um, say, yeah, okay, that's a, that's a challenge, but the end goal is the right thing. So it's about finding those people. That's the real key to it. And we've been very fortunate. I could list them. Some of the ambulance services in New Zealand, Australia, and some of them are here, and another part. So I understand in the US, we're working some fantastic services in the US now, but they're the ones that have the ability to horizon scan and do the right thing that aren't totally bound down with an inability to change culture. So that's, that's the most important thing. It's not money, it's finding good partners. On a personal level, did that require particular skills on your part that you had to learn or develop? In other words, for people who are, again, thinking about undertaking their own projects and wanting to think about what sort of skills they need to develop and learn, is there something that one can study or do or practice from your perspective to get ready to do this? So I think you have to believe in what you're saying. And for us, that's really easy because we passionately believe that what we do is the right thing and and work with people. So for example, if you, the, the biggest culture thing we've done, change we've done is, is this ability to for big organizations to deploy people who they haven't met, they haven't interviewed, they're not on their staff payroll to people in emergency situations. But you work with them to make sure that they're happy with the governance, they're happy that actually this is safe, you do it slow steps and and eventually it becomes the wrong, it comes the opposite becomes the wrong thing. If you look at that, that's what's, that's what's really interesting. Six years ago, everyone was like, no, we're not gonna deploy people we haven't met to cardiac arrests, that's, can't do that. Now, if you aren't doing that, you're doing the wrong thing. So as you convert, completely convert uh, things the other way around. But that's done through working with people slowly through their issues and yeah and basically getting it to a point where they're really comfortable there are i would imagine maybe or maybe not in this context people who raise the objection that first response is something the government should do has being involved in good sam and helping to create this project changed your view about what the role of government is and what the role of participation is in good government I don't think it's changed my view. I think the government slash local services 
do have a role for providing the basic levels of, of stuff in terms of support to the local community. But there is also a role for people volunteering and wanting to help their local community. And in a way, what we're doing is replacing what was there before, and I'm talking like 20, 30 years ago. So if I just take London as a probably fairly extreme example, but I imagine large parts of the US are like this as well. It used to be that you knew everyone who lived in your street and you knew everyone around and you met them in the shop and various things like that. There was a community feel. Now, the transient population of large parts of London and just the way nature is now, you don't necessarily know all your neighbours anymore. What we're doing by bringing technology into this is bringing in a it's and i don't like to use like uber and tinder and others examples of this but it's bringing that sort of technology to connect people that otherwise might not connect and so it's not really any different you wouldn't have expected the government previously to have helped you move a piano or something in your house but you might ask a neighbor to give your hand and this is the same sort of thing it's asking people around you to provide oh could you pick up the um, my pharmacy stuff for me because i'm i can't get out of the house the government shouldn't necessarily do that, but your next door neighbours might do. Uh, so it's it's just replacing like for like, but using technology to do it. This project, there's been a lot of pro- crowdsourcing, open innovation, engagement projects to date. This one has had unusual staying power. It's really lasted a very long time in the scheme of things relative to a lot of sort of one-off crowdsourcing competitions and whatnot. So what do you attribute the kind of lasting quality of this and the, inst- the fact that you've really been able to institutionalize Good Sam? Uh, no, no, with, no, with no shadow of a doubt, it's, it's two things. It's the good governance and it's the good technology. The system works and always works and it's the, the way that it works and people can rely on it. And the other very important thing, which is probably the, the most important thing, is actually the volunteers themselves. We have an amazing community that we work with. Hopefully they feel very part of that community. And that's another thing we can, we can talk about for hours, just how do you make people feel valued and as part of their volunteering work. But we have an amazing community and yeah, just keep doing the right thing. <laughs> if you keep doing the right thing, it seems to go in the right direction. Is the care and feeding of that community something that it take care of itself? Is it mutually self-reinforcing or is there a lot that Um, you need to do to really invest in building the community, nurturing it, maintaining it, and making people feel valued? No, well, there's there's bits of things you can do technologically. So, for example, in the system, the people people who are on the platform can talk to each other through the platform through a radio-type function. So we build it so that actually it, it... has social functions as well but also the partners we work with hopefully look after their elements of the community and and i think they do Uh, and that's why people register and people stay signed on and people volunteer because actually they're feeling part of something that's that's quite important and and to be fair we're not usually asking a huge amount it's not like we're asking people to sign up for to man us man a library for a week they're just either going to go and say someone's life takes them about five minutes to run around the corner or, or they might just be collecting something from a local shop so it's not this is micro volunteering rather than a massive commitment to them and if they can't go they can't go and someone else goes it's not a problem maybe you could just give a little bit more description of how the governance actually works is there anything special about the way the project's governed who's involved in the governance that helps to contribute to that longevity governance itself is a very big topic But what we mean is that we design an infrastructure as such that it's not just secure from a cyber attack point of view, but it's secure from from any kind of 
malicious or even not malicious activity. So, for example, if I just give you an example of another bit of governance, we're just we're running this monitoring platform now. So, for if you're sick at home with COVID or any illness, the local emergency service can send you a text every couple of hours that says, "How are you? How what's your respiratory rate? What's your pulse rate? What's your temperature?" and and that goes back into the system, that's fine. But to make it really well governed, what we do is that if you type in that your respiratory rate is, say, over 25 or over 30, it will say you're now sick and you need to call this number. So we build in layers of additional security within the system, whether that be on a clinical basis or whether it be on a sort of responder basis to make sure that people are who they say they are, really to, to give as much confidence in the system as you possibly can. And I think that's the right thing to do, I think. <laughs> So I think I just want to come back to the personal question for a moment, what advice you would have for people, any succinct advice you want to give people who are thinking about becoming change makers, who are thinking about careers in the working in the public interest and how collective intelligence can play a role. Yeah, so I, I don't have great careers advice. I've always just wandered along doing whatever I've wanted to do and I seem to end up in the right place, usually. So from a careers advice point of view, I think find something you're passionate about and follow that rather than necessarily looking for how you can do something, just find your passion first of all, and then do something with that, if that makes sense. It's a bit like being an entrepreneur, isn't it? Uh, everyone goes, oh, I'm an entrepreneur. Go, really? What have you done? And, they, and most entrepreneurs I know have done nothing, but they call themselves entrepreneurs. Don't go and overstep the mark. Just find something you want to do that you feel passionate about and start off small with it and then just get the right people around you who can be part of it. Uh, and then if you're doing the right thing, it will grow. You don't need to do anything uh, overly clever or overly complicated or raise loads of money. And you can start small. That's certainly that's what we've done. We just started small and just um, kept doing the right thing and brought, be collaborative, bring other people with you. And it's, that's the way to do it. That's really important, I think. Sorry, I don't really have a really good careers advice. Whoa, I could tell you the best, the best careers advice I've ever had was go and get drunk and then write down the things you must do with your life. And that was actually brilliant careers advice because like, you want to be a little bit drunk so you're a bit more overly honest with yourself and a little bit ambitious. If you just do it when you're sober, it doesn't work. So uh, that's good, like, good careers advice. <laughs> that's what I was looking for right there. Um, what's on the future horizon for Good Sam? Oh, there's tons we're still doing. And we're working considerably now with other services, police, fire, and lots of other organizations as well, providing remote care. And if you think that the police is a remote care service as well, it's a care service as well. They're looking after people who are vulnerable or who are victims of crime and things like that. So we're all doing the same thing, really. And uh, so it's providing uh, similar sort of services for them and really clever staff around drones and various other bits and bobs that we're doing. But you're probably following all the debates about systemic racism and Black Lives Matter. And there have been protests in London, not just in the United States. Many discussions here about how to reorganize and rethink policing in ways that are more responsive to the community and less prone to violence. Are there lessons from Good Sam here about how to redesign and rethink policing in a more participatory fashion that we should be taking uh, away for the, shall we call it the defund the police, rethink, reimagine the police discussion? Uh, yeah. So some of the stuff we're doing around video is in, to sort of follow that sort of line in terms of people being able to open police and open up people's cameras remotely and see what's going on. And it's effectively the policeman's there is there is is there immediately on scene and can see what's going on. And that can actually de-escalate 
uh, situations as well, because everyone knows that it's being videoed at that time. And there's lots of things we can do around that, a sort of community support, community neighbourhood, not policing, but, but community security watching and, and being aware of what's going on around that, that we've been involved with here. Yeah, I think that for certain communities where there's less overt police presence, that might be a, a, a better thing to do. But it's certainly a big debate, and we'd be very happy to try and join that debate and see what we can bring, both from a community perspective. So, like we have volunteer responders, as in like for cardiac, we have volunteer, and we are working with people who have volunteers, neighbourhood watch people on the platform as well, so that you can do this without necessarily having the heavy arm of the police presence causing maybe more conflict in, in that way. So, yeah, but there's lots we can do on that front. It'd be great. I think we should put a pin in in that and see whether there is a a conversation we could organize there because I think there's so much interest in how do you bring social workers, mental health workers, and organize that additional capacity in first response that I think we could stand to learn a lot. Anything we did, you obviously do a thousand interviews about Good Sam all the time. I'm surprised you you probably need to clone yourself just to do all the media. Anything that we should have asked you that we didn't ask you that we really should capture again. This The goal of this is really to get other people to be like you. I know. Well, all I'd say is, was, it's not about being like, like me or like us, but we, we're really collaborative. So if you're an organization out there that wants to get in touch and see how we can work together and support things, that'd be great. GoodSamApp.org is the website. Uh, ping me an email or any of us an email through that. So yeah, just we're always open to discussing ideas. So just tell people to get in touch and um, uh, very happy to discuss. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another exciting episode. Again, check out thegovlab.org slash collective intelligence.